returns after lunch with an arsenal and wipes out 15 of his co-workers. And I thought of the playground massacres and the slaughters at fast food restaurants. And those victims were innocent children and otherwise decent citizens. We were a bunch of lawyers. Using a series of grunts and gun thrusts, he lined the eight litigators up against the wall. He removed his filthy trench coat, folded it as if it were new, and placed it in the center of the long conference table. He slowly removed the next layer, a bulky gray cardigan. Under it, strapped to his waist, was a row of red sticks, which appeared to my untrained eye to be dynamite. Wires ran like colored spaghetti from the tops and bottoms of the sticks, and silver duct tape kept things attached. To gasps and slight moans from the eight against the wall, our captor then produced a neat bundle of yellow nylon rope and a switchblade. He turned the gun back toward me. You, he said. Tie them up. Rafter had had enough. He took one step forward and said, Look, pal, just exactly what do you want? Another shot, over Rafter's head and into the ceiling. Do not call me pal, the man said, and pal was instantly discarded as a reference. What would you like us to call you, I asked, sensing that I was about to become the leader of the hostages. I said this very delicately, with great deference, and he appreciated my respect. Mister, he said. Mister was perfectly fine with everyone in the room. The phone rang, and I thought for a split second he was going to shoot it. Instead, he waved it over, and I placed it squarely before him on the table. He lifted the receiver with his left hand. His right still held the gun, and the gun was still pointed at Rafter. If the nine of us had a vote, Rafter would be the first sacrificial lamb, eight to one. Hello, Mr. said. He listened briefly, then hung up. Take the rope, he said to me. He wanted them attached at the wrist. I cut rope and tied knots and tried my best not to look at the faces of my colleagues as I hastened their deaths. I could feel the gun at my back. He wanted them bound tightly, and I made a show of practically drawing blood while leaving as much slack as possible. Rafter mumbled something under his breath, and I wanted to slap him. Beefy Umstead was able to flex his wrists so that the ropes almost fell loose when I finished with him. Malamud was sweating and breathing rapidly. He was the oldest, the only partner, and two years past his first heart attack. I couldn't help but look at Barry Nuzo, my one friend in the bunch. We were the same age, 32, and had joined the firm the same year. He went to Princeton, I went to Yale. Both of our wives were from Providence. His marriage was working, three kids in four years. Mine was in the final stage of a long deterioration. Our eyes met, and we both were thinking about his kids. I felt lucky to be childless. The first of many sirens came into range, and Mr. instructed me to close the blinds over the five large windows. I went about this methodically, scanning the parking lot below, as if being seen might somehow save me. A lone police car sat empty with its lights on. The cops were already in the building. And there we were. Nine white boys and Mr. At last count, Drake and Sweeney had 800 lawyers in offices around the world. Half of them were in D.C., in the building Mr. was terrorizing. He instructed me to call the boss and inform him that he was armed and wired with 12 sticks of dynamite. 
I called Rudolph Mays, managing partner of my division, Antitrust, and relayed the message. You okay, Mike? he asked me. We were on Mr.'s new speakerphone at full volume. Wonderful, I said. Please do whatever he wants. What does he want? I don't know yet. Mr. waved the gun and the conversation was over. Taking my cue from the pistol, I assumed a standing position next to the conference table, a few feet from Mr., who had developed the irritating habit of playing absent-mindedly with the wires coiled against his chest. He glanced down and gave a slight tug at a red wire. This red one here? I give it a yank and it's all over. The sunglasses were looking at me when he finished this little warning. I felt compelled to say something. Why would you do that? I asked, desperate to open a dialogue. I don't want to, but why not? I was struck by his diction, a slow, methodical rhythm with no hurry and each syllable getting equal treatment. He was a street bum at the moment, but there had been better days. Why would you want to kill us, I asked. I'm not going to argue with you, he announced. No further questions, Your Honor. Because I'm a lawyer and live by the clock, I checked my watch so that whatever happened could be duly recorded if we somehow managed to survive. It was 1.20. I heard voices in the foyer, sirens outside. A police radio squawked somewhere down the hallway. What did you eat for lunch? Mr. asked me. Too surprised to consider lying, I hesitated for a second, then said, A grilled chicken, Caesar? Alone? No, I, I met a friend, a law school buddy. How much did it cost for both of you? Thirty bucks. He didn't like this. Thirty bucks, he repeated, for two people? He shook his head, then looked at the eight litigators. If he pulled them, I hope they planned a lie. There were some serious stomachs among that group, and thirty bucks wouldn't cover their appetizers. You know what I had? he asked me. No. I had soup. Soup and crackers at the shelter. Free soup, and I was glad to get it. You could feed a hundred of my friends for thirty bucks, you know that? I nodded gravely as if I suddenly realized the weight of my sin. How much money did you make last year? Mr. asked me next. Again, I was startled. I, um, gosh, let me see. Don't lie. 120000 He didn't like this either. How much did you give away? Give away? Yeah, to charities. Oh, uh, well, uh, I really don't remember. My wife takes care of the bills and things like that. All eight litigators seemed to shift at once. Mr. didn't like my answer, and he was not about to be denied. Who, like, fills in your tax form? You mean for the IRS? Yeah, that's it. Uh, it's handled by our tax division down on the second floor. Then get it for me. Get me the tax records for everybody here. I must have hesitated a moment too long before calling Rudolph again, because Mr. shouted, Do it now! He used the gun when he shouted. In 15 minutes, the 1040 started coming in on the fax machine in the corner. You first, Mr. said to me. What's your name? Michael Brock, I answered politely. Nice to meet you. How much money did you make last year? I've already told you, 120000 before taxes. How much you give away? 
I located my own 1040 and flipped through the pages. Claire had earned 31000 as a second-year surgical resident, so our gross income looked quite handsome. But we paid 53000 in taxes, federal income, and an amazing variety of others. And after repayment of student loans, her educational expenses, 2400 a month for a very nice apartment in Georgetown, two late-model cars with the obligatory mortgages, and a host of other costs naturally related to a comfortable lifestyle, we had invested only 22000 in mutual funds. Mr. was waiting patiently. In fact, his patience was beginning to unnerve me. I assumed that the SWAT boys were crawling in the air vents, climbing nearby trees, scampering across the roofs of buildings next door, looking at blueprints of our offices, doing all the things you see on TV with the goal of somehow placing a bullet through his skull, and he seemed oblivious to it. He had accepted his fate and was ready to die. Not true for the rest of us. I gave a thousand dollars to Yale, I said, and, and two thousand to the local United Way. How much did you give to poor people? I doubted if the Yale money went to feed needy students. Uh, well, the United Way spreads the money around the city, and, and I'm sure some of it went to help the poor. How much did you give to the hungry? I paid fifty-three thousand in taxes. And a nice chunk of it went for welfare, Medicaid, aid to dependent children, stuff like that. And you did this voluntarily, with a giving spirit. I didn't complain, I said, lying like most of my countrymen. Have you ever been hungry? He likes simple answers, and my wit and sarcasm would not be productive. No, I said, I have not. Have you ever slept in the snow? No. You make a lot of money, yet you too greedy to hand me some change on the sidewalk. He waved the gun at the rest of them. All of you, you walk right by me as I sit and beg. You spend more on your fancy coffee than I do on meals. He turned to me again. Which of these guys makes the most money, he asked. Malamud was the only partner, and I shuffled the papers until I found his. That would be me, Malamud offered. What is your name? Nate Malamud. I flipped through Nate's return. It was a rare moment to see the intimate details of a partner's success, but I got no pleasure from it. How much, mister asked me. Oh, the joys of the IRS code. What would you like, sir? Gross, adjusted gross, net, taxable, income from salaries and wages, or income from business and investments? Malamud's salary from the firm was $50,000 a month, and his annual bonus, the one we all dreamed about, was $510,000. He was one of many partners who had earned over a million dollars. I decided to play it safe. There was lots of other income tucked away near the back of the return, rental properties, dividends, a small business, but I guessed that if Mr. somehow grabbed the return, he would struggle with the numbers. 1.1 million, I said, leaving another 200,000 on the table. He contemplated this for a moment. You made a million dollars, he said to Malamud, who wasn't the least bit ashamed of it. Yes, I did. How much did you give to the hungry and the homeless? I don't recall exactly. My wife and I give to a lot of charities. I know there was a donation, I think, for 5,000 to the Greater D.C. Fund, which, as I'm sure you know, distributes money to the needy. We give a lot, and we're happy to do it. 
I'm sure you're very happy, Mr. replied with the first hint of sarcasm. He wasn't about to allow us to explain how generous we really were. He simply wanted the hard facts. He instructed me to list all nine names and beside each write last year's income, then last year's gifts to charities. It took some time. I didn't know whether to hurry or be deliberate. Would he slaughter us if he didn't like the math? Perhaps I shouldn't hurry. It was immediately obvious that we rich folks had made lots of money while handing over precious little of it. At the same time, I knew the longer the situation dragged on, the crazier the rescue scenarios would become. If you round it off, it comes to three million dollars, I reported to Mr. at last. He slowly shook his head. And how much for the poor people? Total contributions of 180000 I don't want total contributions. Don't put me and my people in the same class with the symphony and the synagogue and all your pretty white folks' clubs where you auction wine and autographs and give a few bucks to the Boy Scouts. I'm talking about food. Food for hungry people who live in the same city you live in. Food for little babies who go starving at night. How much money did you folks give to the soup kitchens? Any? He was looking at me. I was looking at the papers in front of me. I couldn't lie. Not directly, I said. But some of these charities... Shut up! He waved the damn gun again. How about the homeless shelters? Places we sleep when it's ten degrees outside. How many shelters are listed there in those papers? Invention failed me. None, I said. He jumped to his feet, startling us, the red sticks fully visible under the silver duct tape. He kicked his chair back. How about the clinics? We got these little clinics where doctors, good, decent people who used to make lots of money, come and donate their time to help the sick. They don't charge nothing. Government used to help pay the rent, help buy the medicine and the supplies. Now the government's run by Newt, and all the money is gone. How much do you give to the clinics? None, I said again. Three million dollars, he said in disgust. And not a dime for the sick and the hungry. You are miserable people. We felt miserable. And I realized he was not going to kill us. How could an average street bum acquire dynamite? And who would teach him how to wire it? At dusk, he said he was hungry, and he told me to call the boss and order soup from the Methodist...